Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening and welcome. This is an educational podcast of sorts that will help you, hopefully, better understand your compliance obligations. We hope you'll enjoy these additional materials. And as always, if you're one of our ongoing comprehensive clients, don't hesitate to reach out with your questions because at Advisor Compliance Services, we love to talk compliance. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the first emergency edition of the ACS podcast. PTE 2020-02 has come out. It's been out for a little while, but it's come out with a vengeance because there have been a a bunch of folks who've been pumping out a lot of substantial material about this. And we just thought we wanted to get out in front of this and make sure that our clients have a really good grip on PTE 2020-02, what it means, what they've got to do, and, and, and even a little bit of the background on it. So, Lori, do you want to take it away? Oh, sure. Thanks, Scott. Yeah. It's always fun to open up a uh, securities podcast with a Yogi Berra uh, <laughs> citation, but I'm going to do that because, as he said, it's deja vu all over again. Yeah. And uh, famous St. Louis. And yeah, Yogi that's Berra, true. Good right? point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> even better. You know, and what I mean by that is people that had been around some years ago, namely 2016. We've seen this before. The DOL back in 2016 essentially did the same thing. They came out and with some rulemaking. And in part of that rulemaking, they passed a fiduciary rule that made anybody that was rendering advice to a retirement investor was a fiduciary. So that obviously caught up insurance people, BDs, obviously RIAs, As a result, the BDs strongly, strongly fought that, and it was struck down by a Texas court in 2018. So it kind of just laid low and until 2020, and it was essentially resurrected by the Department of Labor in essentially the same form. So I think it's important to start off by saying, look, we do have this. This is in place. But yet, again, the BDs have challenged the the Department of Labor's rulemaking efforts in this, and it's at the court again. So we don't know if if we're going to go back through the same machinations of having gone through putting in all these, what we're going to tell you about, these disclosures and acknowledgments and documentation just to have it once again struck down by the courts. But we do know that there are certain elements of this PTE 2020-02 that is in effect now, and then there's specifically a provision that's going to go into effect at the end of June. So unless the court strikes it down, we're left with having to be in compliance. And so I think it bears mentioning now that folks understand where they are in compliance with this exemption. Talk to you a little bit about what it means and kind of peel the onion back, so to speak, to to tell you exactly what the exemption requires, what is required of you to satisfy it, and where you're going, where we go going forward. That's a good roadmap. Yeah. So I guess without further ado, let's talk about what this PTE 2020-02 is. Because once again, we're talking about the Department of Labor. This is not from the securities divisions or the SEC. This is a Department of Labor rulemaking that is PTE, which stands for Prohibitive Transaction Exemption. 
And the 2020-02 just refers to the year and the number. So 20 back in 2020-02, and it was the second one that came out. But what's important is to understand that PTE part, the prohibited transaction exemption, because under ERISA, the framework is that if someone earns compensation as a result of providing investment advice to a retirement investor, that can trigger the need to satisfy this exemption. Otherwise, that compensation is prohibited. And if it violates ERISA, it's strict liability. And it means that you got to pay that money back. So that's why it's so important to understand the scope of these, this exemption and how it applies. How it applies first is, is you're going to look to what is being done. And as, I'm, as I mentioned, it, it talks a lot about advisors giving advice to clients about retirement assets. So 401k accounts, 403b, 457, those types of accounts. And also now specifically includes IRAs. That at one time was somewhat of confusion whether an IRA account was indeed covered under ERISA and these IRS tax laws. This DOL PTE 2020 made it clear that this advice to IRAs is implicated. So that is going to be cast a wider net, as you can imagine. And what they are looking for is the times in which an investment advisor is providing advice or recommendations regarding purchasing or selling securities, and you're doing it for a fee. And also that it's is a part of a regular basis of that engagement and that it's that investment advice is going to serve as the primary basis for an investment decision. And the advice is individualized. So I'm packing in a lot of this five-part element test that separates out the times in which this exemption is needed and times in which it's not. And basically, I think it's going to fall down to, look, if you're given personalized investment advice for a fee and it's part of your ongoing engagement, then this is going to trigger the need for an exemption if it's going to include advice to a retirement account. If it's just general education, then they're saying, no, we don't think that's going to trigger the need for this exemption. So that's the difference, right? So they're, they're saying, look, ex- education only, no need for the exemption. But again, if you're sitting across the table and you're recommending to me any type of advice regarding an IRA account or my held away account at my employer, you're going to need to satisfy this PTE 2020-02 when you make a recommendation to that account. And so what is this? So let's talk now about the nitty gritty of, of what it is that this exemption requires. So what the DOL says, look, first of all, we're going to want to have the advisors satisfy these, what they call impartial conduct standards. Okay. It's what the DOL has says that they want anybody to comply with when they're rendering this advice. And for an RIA, it's not, it's not earth shattering. It's three things. You're providing prudent investment advice. Okay, which is basically the suitability obligation wrapped up into that. So providing prudent investment advice is one of the standards. The second one is charging only reasonable compensation. I'm thinking that 
anybody that's listening to this podcast, that is not going to be an issue, but it is part of the conduct standards that one was, must meet. So charging only reasonable compensation. And the third one is avoid misleading statements. Kind of low-hanging fruit, right? It, suitability. It's already wrapped into your obligation as an RIA. Charging only reasonable compensation. Well, as an RIA, you're, you're under that obligation anyway. And then three, avoiding misleading statements. Again, as an RIA, this is already wrapped up into the securities laws. So nothing really earth shattering about the compliance of those impartial conduct standards in the manner in which you conduct yourselves already as an RIA. Let's talk about the other additional standards upon which will satisfy the exemption. The other one is you have to make a written disclosure that you're a fiduciary to your clients and disclose any conflicts. So how do you do that? Well, what we have done is we have added disclosure language in that item four of your ADV part two. In fact, the acknowledgement of the fiduciary status was language that we used in the ADVs that the DOL suggested. So you should look Make sure that your item four in your ADV part two contains this disclosure uh, language regarding your compliance with the RISA and the Internal Revenue Code and conflicts. So that is one way that RIAs can satisfy this disclosure obligation. So what else do you need to do? Also, the exemption requires an annual compliance review of your firm's uh, compliance with the exemption. So you'll want to make sure that every year, no less than annually, the firm has a process by which they can document a review of their compliance with the exemptions. So that's the important part about the annual review. There's the other part about having policies and procedures, right? So you're going to need policies and procedures that comply with the need for the exemptions, impartial conduct standards. And then what I'm going to talk to you about now, which a lot of people are focused on, which is the rollover recommendation. So this was something that if we think about the whole precipice of why the DOL went down this road is back in 2016, they were talking about this perfect storm happening. So you had people who were retiring and you had a lot of retirees. You have a move away from the defined benefit to deferred compensation by employers. So in lieu of pensions, we now have deferred compensation accounts. And so you had a lot of people that had those types of accounts that were retiring and a lot of activity in the industry about these rollovers. So roll it over to a, a directly managed IRA. And so the DOL was concerned about the ability for those individuals making those recommendations, knowing that that recommendation to roll over that account was truly in their client's best interest. And so when they passed the rule, they said, look, if you are going to receive additional compensation as a result of your advice to a client to roll over money to an IRA that you're going to oversee. And again, as a result, you're going to increase your compensation. 
then that triggers the need for the exemption rollover recommendation documentation. And so as part of the PTE 2020, as far as O2, they have a need for the rollover recommendation to be in the best interest of the client needs to be documented. And so the DOL went into some detail in its uh, rulemaking and the accompanying materials which, by the way, there is an FAQ that the DOL put out in April of last year. It's not voluminous. I think it's, it's like it's nine pages. Yeah, it's, not yeah. it's not robust. It's not a lot. Yeah. No, it's not. And it's pretty simple, not simple, but it's easy to, or to understand. It's not written solely for us compliance that people. So I would urge you that if you did have some particular questions, you probably could find your answer there. So that's a good resource. But going back to the rollover recommendation and the need to document it to be the basis upon which you believe that recommendation to be in the client's best interest, they broke that down and said, look, what we want you to know or what we want you to make sure that you know when you make that recommendation is, hey, what is the client's account fees? So what are they paying? Okay, in that deferred account. And what's the performance been? And what's available to them as far as investment selection and the performance of that? And so I use the example of, gee, when I was part of the state of Missouri and at the securities division, well, when I first started, they had two pages of mutual funds and good ones. And you got to pick from a whole plethora. By the time I left there, they had replaced that with target date funds, and you could only choose one. And it was underperforming, and it was not great. And so if you think about if I was in a situation with an advisor at the time that we had all that great lineup versus the time when I was in, in the target date fund. So they want you to, to document that you looked at that information and you find that information in that form 5550 is my understanding. So you would go to the Department of Labor and those ERISA plans have to file those, those annual reports. And so my understanding, that's what that form 5550 is. And that's where you're going to find a lot of the information that the DOL has said they think that advisor or anybody has to have possession of and understand before they make a recommendation to roll that money out to an IRA. And again, it's going to trigger when you receive additional compensation. So the question that I think a lot of you that use fixed fees may be asking yourself, hey, if it doesn't affect the client's fee, then does it trigger the exemption? And so, for example, if I'm paying a fixed fee and it makes no difference for where my assets are held, and so therefore no change in effect between it being over in the deferred comp versus being in the directly overseen IRA, then again, a rollover recommendation is not going to result in, in any conflict of interest to you because you're not receiving additional compensation. But what you do have, and I think it bears a a more thoughtful and deeper thought process is, is there a situation whereby you may be getting a benefit in a different way, i.e., for example, if you use a TAMP and frequently in the back office operations or in the TAMP agreement, there are breakpoints. 
And so if there's a breakpoint built into that agreement with that asset manager that is based upon the assets under management that you bring to that outside manager's investment oversight, and thereby you're going to receive a benefit, i.e. the breakpoint, I think there's that conflict. And so that would trigger the need for this rollover recommendation. Another one that the DOL looks at is also whether the exemption also covers recommendations of a financial institution's proprietary investment products or investment products that generate payments from third parties. So, you know, not that those of you that are listening receive benefits from your custodian, but For example, those individuals that may receive 12B1 fees or sales loads or markup, markdowns, revenue sharing payments, you know, that type of compensation in a soft dollar format would also trigger. But I believe for some of you, it's more of the situation whereby you're going to have to look at your agreements with the TAMPs to see if those breakpoints may trigger that that additional compensation element and thereby implicate the need to satisfy the exemption. What you would do in order for satisfying the exemption, as I mentioned, is they want documentation. So you need to have a rollover recommendation worksheet as part of your processes and as part of your operations. So if you don't have one, then reach out to us at ACS and we will provide you with one. I think most People have one of these by now, but if you don't, then by all means, you can use the template that we have. You can customize it with other information that you deem necessary in order to recommend a a rollover recommendation or want a document. But this does reflect what the DOL has said, that they certainly want advisors to document as part of a rollover recommendation. Think ADV. Part two, acknowledgement. You'll need your rollover recommendation worksheet in place and policies and procedures. So go back to your compliance manual. Make sure you have policies and procedures that meet three goals, basically. One, compliance with the impartial conduct standards. So spit it out. It's not difficult. Just say it's your policy to comply with the impartial conduct standards and set forth those what those three are, and that you're also will mitigate any conflicts of interest when you're providing advice to an investment account as per required under ERISA, and you'll comply with the rollover documentation. Not earth-shattering for most of you, but again, you're coming under another regulatory scheme, i.e. the Department of Labor under ERISA and the Internal Revenue Code that's separate and addition from the securities. You can see the overlap because to me, that rollover recommendation, again, what are we talking about? It's suitability. So that impartial conduct standard, as I mentioned, the number one is providing prudent investment advice. That's suitability. So there's a lot of overlap. And so a lot of what you're doing already will satisfy. But again, you just have to understand that that this is a different regulatory scheme that needs satisfying outside in addition to the securities. But it's certainly for you all 
nothing that a lot has not already been done for you at this point, but it is important to know exactly what it is that you do need and make sure that it is in place for your particular firm. I think that kind of wraps it all up. Is there any... Thing I that thinking, I missed. I hope not. <laughs> I don't think so. No, I was. I was just thinking as you were talking that I'm. I'm making it a habit in these. Uh, in these broadcasts to not say very much, and and you know what? To all of our listeners, you're very welcome. By the way, because <laughs> I'm not very interesting anyhow. Um, yeah, no, I think that sums it up. I mean, you know, it's the the real the bottom line is just you know this isn't anything scary. So yeah. all right, yeah. So thanks all for right. listening, folks. All right. If you have any questions, just give us a call or follow up with us. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.